This is an ABC podcast. Most Australians are aware of the story of the Balibo Five. They were a crew of TV journalists from Channel 7 and Channel 9 who were sent to cover Indonesia's invasion of East Timor back in 1975. The five journalists came to the village of Balibo and, disregarding every warning, they were shooting footage of the Indonesian forces coming into the town. But they stayed too long and they were brutally executed. One of the five was a man named Tony Stewart. His younger brother, Paulie, was 15 at the time and Paulie found out about it coming home from school. He and the families of the murdered men tried for years to get straight answers about what had happened that day from the Australian government and the Indonesian government. Paulie Stewart went on to become a journalist like his brother. Then in the 1980s, he and a group of friends formed one of the wildest, wildest bands ever to come out of Melbourne, Painters and Dockers, who became famous for their classic singles, Nude School and Die Yuppie Die. Paulie Stewart became more aware of the struggle for independence in East Timor. He brought together another band called the Dilly All-Stars. And now this wild punk rocker counts presidents, priests and an order of Timorese nuns as his friends and spiritual advisors. <laughs> Paulie Stewart's written a memoir and it's called All the Rage. Hello, Paulie. How lovely to have you here. How are you, Richard? Good to see you, buddy. What was life like for the young Paulie Stewart in early 1975 before your brother went to Balibo? Mate, it was a big bubble. It was all about watching epic theatre, the gladiator movies and watching World of Sport and having countless barbecues. Uh, having two older brothers gave me a bit of protection at school and having an older sister and a younger sister meant there were plenty of girls coming through the house. So it was, <laughs> it was pretty good living, you know, yeah. So classic suburban Australian 70s lifestyle then, yeah. watching the goodies and the Brady Bunch on TV, oh, that sort of and, thing. Oh, uh, and Get Smart. Get Smart. My dad loved Get Smart. He used to just speak in lines from Get Smart a lot of the time. Yeah, he had his own vocab. What do you remember of your brother, Tony, and how he was with you? Um, well, he didn't sort of really want to know me much because I was 15 and he was 21 and he was emerging into the world, but he took me under his wing a few times. Loved Monty Python and he loved Collingwood, which put him at lengths with everyone else in the family because we were all St Kilda sort of supporters. <laughs> and um, he was just a young boy, really, 21, you know, you're just growing up and... But I can remember he, he was so excited. He rang mum saying, oh, they're sending me overseas on one of my first ever assignments overseas. And he was just so happy to be going up to East Timor, yeah. How did you become aware on that walk home from school that something had happened to him and the other members of the Balibo? Yeah, well, it was just, um, like like I said, I li was living in this bubble and everything was great. And I was walking home from school with my pals and uh, we walked through Malvern Station and I saw a newspaper banner and it said, you know, five journalists missing in East Timor. And I can remember th thinking, didn't Mum say something about East Timor and Tony? And then I thought, I, I think that's him. So um, I ended up running all the way home. And when I got home, there was Mum and all my aunties, you know, around the, the kitchen table crying, very upset. My mum in particular was just so devastated. But right almost from the word go, she wanted everything to be what it was, you know, to go back to normal. So that night it was actually the night of my year nine dance and she said, you've got to go to this dance. And I said, Mum, I don't want to go to the dance, like, you know, with, with Tony missing. And she said, no. Now, now at this point yeah. it wasn't clear that Tony was dead, was it? No, no. He was just missing at he this point. He was just missing. Right. And their aunties saying, oh, the Indonesians, are, you know, our friends, you know, we helped them, you know, get their liberation, you know, when they, the Melbourne Wharfies stopped the, the Dutch from That's sending right. their troops up 1946, there. I think it was, yeah. yeah. We supported their independence movement against yeah. the Dutch, yeah. So so they were sort of considered our mates. But uh, but Mum sent me to the, to the social and then I sort of moped around it. But then there was a last a big announcement came over the speaker, Ken Pauly and his partner come to the centre of the dance floor and they said, great news, everyone. Paulie's brother's been found alive, 
Oh, I know. And everyone applauded me and I was in the spotlight and I was jumping around going, oh, how great is this? And then I got home and, you know, mum said, false report. They're still missing. And uh, that sort of summed up, you know, the whole Timor thing for me, you know, the lifetime of disappointments, you know, about uh, news that came out of there. Mm. So when was the family told that your brother was dead? Uh, not for another, about another week. And, uh, and how were you told? Someone from the Department of Foreign Affairs sort of rung in. And, you know, in fact, my mum only ever got one official call from the Department of Foreign Affairs, and that was a couple of weeks later when she got a call from someone from the Australian Embassy in Jakarta saying, where do we send the bill for the coffin? And, and that's it, you know, and I tell people that and they don't believe me, but that, that is the honest truth. Where was the Whitlam government when all this was going on? Well... I mean, you would have thought you would have got a call from the foreign minister at that well, point. Well, absolutely. But unfortunately, it was just leading up to the, the dismissal and the domestic politics scene took over and Timor was very sort of forgotten and shoved aside by John Kerr, you know, sacking off. So it sort of got caught up in all that and, and forgotten about. How did the family take the news, your mum and dad? Oh, uh, well, the the problem was, Richard, that, that we, we got one report, but it was never actually said this is actually what happened. So for the next sort of, you know, 20, 30 years, the only time Timor used to get mentioned in the Australian media was when they'd say, oh, another eyewitness has come out to the deaths of the journalists, you know. And, you know, I used to get calls from, you know, the ABC, you know, radio in the morning going, look, it's 5.30, a witness has come out. They claim, you know, the journalists were wrapped in barbed wire then set on fire. Can I get a comment off you, you know? And, it, and Mum just had to sort of deal with that over and over and over. We all did. And um, What was but, the official story about how they died at that time? Well, the invading Indonesians sort of caught them and killed them, but actually how they were killed, that it's, you know, there was reports they were running away and that, and that was... Um, killed in the crossfire was yeah. one line I heard at yeah. the time, I remember that. Yeah, and there was one that they were running away, but the last person to be shot was the tallest one of them, and my brother was the tallest of, all, of them all. So that was another sort of eyewitness report, and I swear you could fill the you know MCG with the amount of witnesses that came forward saying, "Yeah, I was there on 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 the day when I saw him killed." So to this day, even Robert Connolly, when he made the Balibo movie, you know, he sort of based it on what he sort of heard, but there's not an official kind of you know story ever, and that's why it's been this open sort of wound. It's an amazing movie, the Balibo movie, yeah. and the scene where the men are, uh, are murdered by the Indonesian Special Forces. Yeah. It's one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen in cinema, Paulie. Yeah, I, yeah. I wonder how you could... Were you ever, were you ever able to watch that? I wonder. Um, or could you turn, well, have to turn well, away from it? Well, Robert Connolly ended up... I, I really, you know, appreciate Robert because he actually came and sat with my mum and sort of talked her through the whole film, which no sort of government official had ever done and heard her side of the story and he... And he listened to us all, and we all had sort of input into Tony's character in the movie. The funny thing about the movie is when Tony died, they gave me his Red Doc Martens, and I tried them on, and they were just too small for me, you know. And I swear, three times I'd gone to put them out in the rubbish, and I'd gone, oh, no, no, I can't do that, and I kept them. And then I met Mark Winter, the guy who was playing Tony in, in the film, the actor, and I said, I'll try these boots on. And they're a perfect fit. So in the Balibo movie, he's walking around in Tony's Doc Martens in, in the movie, yeah. What we do know, and correct me if I'm wrong mm -hmm. here, is that it was an actual war crime. The men were murdered by the Indonesian Special Forces. It was a war crime. We couldn't get Australian governments to do anything about it because they thought the relationship with a stable Indonesia, what they thought was a stable Indonesia, was much more important and you couldn't get our government to care about it. What did that do to your sense of the world? I was, I was really angry and pissed off, you know. Yeah. I, I couldn't believe he'd just been snatched like that and taken away and everything just went on normally and they sort of explained it as, oh, they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. And there are other reports, oh, they all were dressed as Portuguese in Portuguese army uniforms. That's why they were killed. That's and nonsense. Exactly. Yeah. So I was just filled with this white kind of rage about it all. You know, at 15, that's when you're sort of working out what your life's sort of going to be like. And so in my case, it was like, wow, I'm never going to take 
living for a long time for granted. So if there's a party tonight, I'm going, you know, and I'm going to be the last there and I'm going to have the most fun. Yeah. You were there for a good time, not a long time. That's it. That's it. Yeah. You decided to follow your brother into journalism and got a job at the Melbourne Sun, as it was. The Melbourne Sun Pictorial, it was, a, it was in the morning paper before it was melded with the Herald and became the, the Herald Sun. Yeah, yeah. What was, the, what was that paper like back in 1979 when you joined? Well, I wasn't bad at, at school at English at creating, doing creative writing and it was Mum who said, go in and apply at the Sun newspaper and she said, during the interview, make sure you tell them that your brother was one of the Balibo Five. I hadn't even thought about that. So um, I'd gone in and my marks were terrible at school and the guy interviewing me, you know, was going through the motions and then the last question was, oh, well, why do you want to be a journalist? And I said, oh, well, because my brother Tony was one of the bellower. And this guy sat upright in his chair and said, oh, um, just hang on a tick and walked out of the room because at the time... Channel 7 owned... Owned the, owned the Sun, the Herald and Weekly Times. Yes. That's right. Yes, so he right. went and rang one of the big bosses... And as soon as he left like that, I went, oh, I've got this gig for sure. And then he walked back in, this guy and said, you start on Monday. Now, at the time, the Melbourne Sun was a bit of mm. an interesting hothouse of talent. There was you, there was Mark Trevorrow, a.k.a. Pop Down, <laughs> working, I think, as a pop or rock columnist, and Wendy Harmer as a cadet journalist. I often say to people, what chance did I ever have of being a serious journalist? <laughs> Sit next to those two who were the greatest rap bags of all time. And there was a copy boy there by the name of Robert Thompson. What became of him? Well, Robert Thompson is now the second in charge at News Limited. What, globally? Yes, on a, on a, <laughs> on a lazy $25 million a year, you know, and he's had that gig for 10 years. So uh, he, he certainly kicked on and... Uh, I think a lot of people in those days were alcoholics mm. in journalism as well, and quite a few in the ABC. Back well, in Richard, those days. when I started, I, I could not believe this. I walked in on the first day, and it was eight thirty in the morning, and there were guys at their desk with open long neck bottles of beer, just drinking, and lighting a cigarette from a cigarette. And I just went, "This is, you know." People often, you know, later ended up having problems with my liver myself, and people go, "Ah, oh, you know, is that because you played in punk bands, Paul?" And I go, "No, no, no, no. <laughs> the punks were the were pussy cats. It was the journos were all terrible, terrible." You Breakfast know? beers at eight thirty. Oh, God, and the, bloody hell! Oh, it was <laughs> it was just their culture. It was just. But the funny thing is, I swear these guys would drink and get paralytically drunk and almost be falling off their chairs. But their copy was pristine; you couldn't fault it. And now, no one drinks, and they send it to these experts who who you know proofread it. And it's you know they've got Gary Bablett playing for Brisbane, and it's like, come on, give me a break, you know, like. Uh, that Gary Babbler day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you, you had a various. You're a bit of a jack of all trades. You were uh, the the rock columnist for a bit, and uh, yeah. a ra- well, quite a while actually. Yeah. And, and the racing correspondent for a while. I worked at the races, and I worked in the coroners. It was great because you got to do as a cadetship. They put you in each little department. The only put, the only place they didn't send me was police rounds because. Um, the guys up there went, nah, he's too bent, don't send him up here, the police won't like this guy. So I, I never quite made it to there. But in the early days, my, my journalism was getting the boss's wife's laundry or getting the boss's six six cold beers at lunchtime in cans. Six cold beers in cans at yeah, lunchtime, that's right. it. I'm sort of trying yeah. to track your sense of the world because you talked about how before the death of your brother, mm. you had you lived in a little bubble and a really cosy, loving family yeah. and then realised the world could be so violent and cruel. And then uh, then you're exposed to more of the world being a, a journalist like that. Yeah. What sense did you have of the world then as a cold, hard place or, or what? Well, just as a place where you expect the unexpected and journalism, things happen every day that you can't believe change. So I was just always sort of thinking on my feet and always up for a change or whatever was happening. How did your career in punk rock <clears throat> begin? Because you said already you, you couldn't be sent to the, the coppers yeah, because you were, but yeah. already had only one eyebrow, as I recall that's, at the time. That, that's it, yeah. I mean, and Wendy Harmer, you know, she, she had started getting into fledging comedy scene in Melbourne and so 
she took me to see guys like uh, Los Tres Ring Barkas, you know, those early sort of crew, and I thought, wow, this is off the edge. But but Mark Trevorrow, Bob Down, he once said to me a very profound thing. He said, oh, Paulie, there's this new show in town. You've got to go and see it, mate. I'll get you tickets. You go and see it. And I went, okay, what's it called? And he said, the Rocky Horror Show. So I went along and just went... Oh, wow. This is how great is this show. Yeah, it was the short show that changed Mark Trevorrow's life, he told me. Yes, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Well, yeah. he, you know, he, it did, you know, and then, then he changed my life because he'd seen it. But as a boy, like my two older brothers were into music, but I, I was never really that into music and I can't believe uh, next year's the 40th anniversary of the Painters and Dockers. But um, I was never into music. I can remember watching Countdown and the Sex Pistols came on and my mum, it's the only time I can ever remember her <laughs> turning the television off saying, you're not to watch that. And I said, mum, what, what for? And she said, because you're going to like that too much. And then I went to my Catholic boys' school and the headmaster at the end of the uh, assembly said, right, now, this new thing, punk rock, it's musical pornography. You're not to listen to it. And I'm just going, I've got to hear this stuff, you know. <laughs> so I ran up to this, to our local record shop and there was this hippie there, you know, old hippie there. And I said, oh, you got the Sex Pistols album? And he said, oh, mate, I'll, that is crap, that stuff, you know. You're, you know, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to, oh, well, I'll, I'll play it once for you, but don't ever ask me to do that. And I went, I've got to hear, oh, please play this. And it came on and I just went, oh, wow. You know, it was so sort of angry and in your face. And, mm. and I was listening going, you know, I think I could do this. You know, this is this is pretty simple. That was the message in punk rock, that yeah. here are three chords, go form a band. That's and, it. And that's what you did. So, yeah. you, so you and a bunch of mates started the, the Painters and Dockers. Yeah. As, I remember seeing you guys in the day and I thought this is, it's kind of like using punk music as a stage to perform on. Yeah. What you were really was a kind of a, a kind of a mad sort of bacchanalian form of performance art, as I recall. Well, that, that's it. And, you very know? and comedy too, because you were very funny, as yeah, I remember. Yeah, well, yeah. That, that was because we sort of, when we started, you know, the scene in Melbourne was very much dominated by Nick Cave, who is one of the all-time greats, let's face it, Nick Cave. But there was a whole sort of scene around the Seaview Ballroom of other sort of bands. And, and I kept meeting all these private school kids who'd take their parents' antidepressants and walk around moping, you know, saying life is so hard. And I'd go, you guys don't, you haven't got half an idea of what life can be like. Our main goal in the Pains of Dockers was to shock and offend, you know. It wasn't to entertain you musically. It was like to just cause riots. And, yeah, and you were refreshingly uncool. That's you know, it. You guys were quite very joyful, really. I mean, oh, you were yeah, naughty, absolutely. but very joyful. We, we, you know, we, uh, whatever it took, you know, like going on naked on stage, you know, with dead fish strapped to our bodies by cellular <laughs> tape, you know, and one of my great hang, rock hang memories. On, hang on, There's yeah. no way you can sellotape a fish to a human body, surely. Doesn't uh, the fish fall off? Well, it does, <laughs> and that's half the thing, you know, so by the end of the act, you're all starkers. But I'll, one of the great moments for me in rock and roll was we did support Nick Cave one night and he walked in and he sat in the chair and then he stood up and he picked this snapper up that he'd sit on and he said, hey, mate, what's with the snapper, you know? And I went... That's my costume. That's it. doesn't get better than this, yeah. Of course, you were named after the Notorious Union, which had been the subject of a Royal Commission and there were revelations about bottom-of-the-harbour tax breaks. And yeah. Tell me about the T-shirt you used to wear, Painters and Dockers, which had a picture of a union official and said, we catch and kill our Yeah, own. that was uh, Putty Nose Nichols, and he was the, the leader of the uh, the Painters and Dockers Union. But we called ourselves that because we thought, oh, we're only going to do... It was only supposed to be for one gig, Richard, seriously. To That's play it, right. One gig to pay... They had a band, main band, but they needed a support band you know, to open the night. And I met this guy at the South Melbourne market over the bananas and he <laughs> said, didn't you tell me you played trumpet in the school band? I said, yeah, but I was terrible. And he said, that doesn't matter, you're in. So I was only supposed to do one song. And I said, where are we, you know, and so we got together with this group of guys and <laughs> and, and I said, where's the gig again? And they said, I had a pub in Port Melbourne and it was actually the Painters and Dockers pub where the union members drank. Uh. That... And so someone said, oh, well, let's call ourselves the Painters and Dockers, you know, as a Crowd joke. like it, right. Yeah, yeah, for, yeah. For, for a night. But this this is a true story. No one, everyone thinks I'm making this up, but a very true story is we played that first night and the guy next door to the pub hated it so much, the sound, he jumped the fence with an axe and started chopping up the mixing desk. 
right? Now, somebody's called the police and the, the painters and dockers had one rule at their pub, you know. You could have lines of speed off the bar. You could be, you know, be naked. You could do anything you like. But the police weren't allowed to enter their pub. And the police rocked up and the dockers met him at the door and an all-in bloody brawl started. So you got this brawl happening. The speaker stacks were falling on the ground. Kids were screaming. <laughs> there was beer going up in the air. And I was on stage doing the one song that I was supposed to do with the mic. And I just looked out and went, I want to do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> this is the greatest thing ever, you know. And we played last Friday and it's not much different, you know, seriously. Yeah. I remember your huge hit song at the time, which was Nude School. We're all yeah. going to Nude School, which, yeah. is, which, is, which is hilarious. What kind of um, audience participation did that song encourage? Oh, well, over the years, naked people. We've just had so many, you know, it's blasé now to have a naked person get up on stage with the dockers. But man, and what do they do once they get that dance or something alongside? Oh, you yeah, or what? they jiggle yeah. around jiggle and around. Uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> their bits around. But the reason we did it, we, uh, the song at a pig farm, it was um, at the film clip you mean? Yeah, as yeah. the film clip because we were signed to Mushroom and Mushroom was saying, oh, you, you know, you should be on a, you know, Michael Dinsky was, oh, you can be on a yacht with these girls, and we went, nah, everyone does that. We'll, we'll. So I rang a pig farm and said, can we come and shoot our video there? And this Maltese guy said, yeah, okay, no worries. So we went down and shot this clip naked at a pig farm and then left. And I can remember leaving this pig farm going, I think we might have come up with something they're either going to love <laughs> or never play at all. But it just so happened that MTV Australia started the week that we put out that, that film clip and they needed something to sort of you know, ram themselves into the Australian consciousness. So for the first three weeks of MTV Australia, they played Nude School, which is us frolicking and pink shit, basically, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 Richard, the funny thing is, you know, to this day, three weeks ago, I get on a tram and the driver, oh, mate, you're that guy from that, uh, you know, with the pigs and the nudity. I can't can't get away from it now. <laughs> you're yeah. that guy with the pigs and the nudity. That's yeah. hard to explain on a crowded tram, That's isn't it? That's it, yeah. yeah. Then there was the night where there was a, a nice guy from a, a struggling Sydney band called the Cockroaches. Yes. And things weren't going so well for them in the local pub rock music scene and... And one of them said he was thinking of shifting into kids' entertainment. Yeah. He said, what was, your, what was your advice at the time for the cockroaches? <laughs> that they've never let me forget. It was um, as if there's only money or fame in kids' entertainment, mate. What are you, what are you talking about? Don't do it. No. Nah. Don't, don't go near nah. the kids' entertainment. Whatever became of the Wiggles anyway? Yeah. <laughs> $98 million a year each, I heard. But I was very lucky at, uh, at one stage to work as a journalist um, and I did a bit of stuff for Rolling Stone and I went on one of the Wiggles' first ever American tours, which was just sensational. You Who know? was coming backstage to the Wiggles when you went with them? Well, they did this gig at the Beacon Theatre in New York and I'd seen the show about four or five times. I I just said, I'll just have a rest in the band room while they do this show and I'm in there and there's a knock on the door and I'm going, oh, OK, who's this? And I opened... And it's Robert De Niro, you know. Coming to a son, Wiggles gig. Yeah, and his son, I go, and I said to him, are you looking at me? Are you looking at me? No. I did not, I didn't. You didn't say I that. I would have loved to have, <laughs> but I didn't say that. But then he, he just came in and we just were standing there. I, was, I actually couldn't talk, you know. And then there was another knock, 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 and it was Jerry Seinfeld and his daughter came in and then the Wiggles came running off and I swear the two of them were jostling each other to get their kid in first to meet the Wiggles. I'm going, no one's ever going to believe me. <laughs> Jerry Seinfeld yeah. and Robert De Niro yeah. fighting to be the number one fan of the, of the Wiggles with yeah. their kids, right? That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah. How did the Wiggles come to the rescue for you sometimes well, when, when it came to raising funds well, for his team? Well, they've been fantastic, the Wiggles, and I, I love those guys because I, they, I told them on that trip, you know, about my brother and Tony and Timor, and they have sort of, without any sort of great fanfare, they once put uh, sewage and toilet facilities in six Timorese villages, you know, um, which is fantastic. But they've also given me heaps of merchandise that I've taken up to, to East Timor. There's actually a school up in East Timor where the official 
school uniform is the is the Wiggles outfit. <laughs> I think that's a true story. <laughs> and I took this stuff to, up to this other school and there was this very serious nun, Mother Superior, in charge, and I unloaded all the gear and she saw the wags the dog had and she put it on and we did a little bit of a presentation. Then I was, I was leaving, you know, I said, oh, sister, goodbye, you know, you can give that hat to one of the kids. And she said, no, 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 that's my hat. And to this day, this nun, I think they call her Sister Wags, she gets around in the wags the dog had. you got to sort of laugh. It's, you know, the Wiggles. Fantastic guys. Broadcast... Podcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. So there were still all these unknowns about the death of your brother Mm. in East Timor. No one was talking to the Australian government. My understanding at the time was that the Department of Foreign Affairs, or DFAT as it then became, were telling Prime Minister after Prime Minister that Indonesia was a force for stability in the region, that East Timor could never have stood on its own, uh, and that it was an overall good thing for Australia, that the Indonesian forces would continue to manage East Timor as a kind of a colony, if, if, if you like. Is that your understanding of how, how the Australian government, what the Australian prime ministers were being told? Sure. And, and you also had, like, the heavy heavy influence of something like the Catholic Church who were, um, you know, Bob Santa Maria and the DLP, you know, they... Everyone was petrified that uh, Timor could become the next Vietnam and become a communist country. So when Fredlin got in as an independent during a brief period of independence, independence. yeah, Yeah. they thought, oh, oh, wow, you know, this left-wing thing, you know, party getting in, if Timor ends up communist, it's the dominoes coming to Australia, we've got to stop it. So, you know, the Australian army, we supplied the Indonesians with weaponry, as did the British. It's the old thing, you know, you can have all the best weaponry in the world, but if you're up against a guy who's fighting for his grandfather's land and he's got a knife and a little bag of rice, you're not going to beat him, you know, because that's their land, you know, and you die for your land, yeah. And the first time I actually went to East Timor was in 1993 and it was under the, it was still under Indonesian rule there and, oh, it was so, you know, scary and horrible, the vibe there. It was... Um, well, tell me about that trip. How did you get into East Timor, given that you were the brother of one of the Balabo Five? Well, uh, we sort of snuck in. The, the band were playing up in Darwin and a friend said, well, let's go over to Timor, Paulie. And I went, oh, OK. And the only way in those days was to fly to Kapang, the capital of West Timor. And so we went there and then we got on a little minibus for 12 hours that drove across the the hills of Timor and entered into East Timor. But I can remember we went into Dili and there was just this eerie kind of feel. There were machine gun nests on every sort of corner. Uh, the Indonesian Red Beret Special Forces were there. And you just see the local people cowering and, um, you know, I can remember we went out on a few walks and people had come running up to you in the street with little bits of paper saying, ring my uncle who's in Sydney and tell him to get me out. We kept getting inundated by local people saying, help us, you know, help us get out. And, and, and how dangerous was it for them to approach you as a very conspicuous outsider? Oh, very, very, very dangerous, you know, and they told me about the ninja men. Who are, the, who are the ninja men? Well, they were the, the Indonesian special forces guys who'd dress all in black, who'd come around and grab you during the middle of the night, and many of them had lost friends and family members who were grabbed by the ninjas and just never seen again. And as a result, what happened when you got back that, that evening to the Hotel Turismo in Dili where you were staying? Well, we went into a bar and there were these two Australian guys um, attached to, I think, the military attaché attached to the... Australian Embassy in Jakarta, and they were there, and they, were, you know, they had a few drinks and the military, the, the military attaches yeah. from the department at, working for the Department of Foreign Affairs at the 
embassy in Jakarta yeah. and they're in East Timor. Yeah, on a junket and they sort of said to us, oh, you know, we love this trip. We get sent here every year and we just get on it for a few days and then we go back and say nothing, there's nothing to report. Oh, why are you guys here? And I said, oh, well, my brother was one of the da 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 And they both sobered up sort of almost immediately and then left. When we first got there, we weren't sort of humbug too much. But it was after telling those two guys that that when we left the hotel, everywhere we went, we were followed by people and... Um, so you suspect they passed on information oh, it, about your presence I to the I think they had to have because, you know, we, we literally had guys with cameras walking alongside us, t- snapping us away and... Um, and I can remember we'd met some Timorese people who invited us to a wedding that night and um, we thought, oh, great, Saturday night in Dilly, go to a wedding, new beauty. And we went out to the front of the Hotel Turismo and a, and a couple of jeeps of Indonesian soldiers pulled up and this captain got out and said, listen, you know, where are you going? And I said, you know, to this wedding. And he said, well, there's two ways this can go, you know. You go to the wedding and we're going to come as well and call it off or you can just stay here and we'll let the wedding happen. So we just sort of said, oh, well, we'll stay here, you know. So this led you to form a band with your friend Gil Santos, a Timorese musician. Yeah. Tell me about how the Dilly All-Stars got started. Well, the day Shenanigas Mayor got captured, he's the resistance leader up there, there was a protest rally in Melbourne outside the Indonesian consulate and there was a sort of a tent there backstage and I walked in and I saw this guy and we both sized each other up and we got to talking and he told me he was a muso and he, he came one night and saw the Dockers and he, he described me as to his friend as like seeing a wild animal on stage. <laughs> so I can't believe we've gone on to do what we have. But then we we got to talking and he, he sat me down and this guy's 10 years younger than me, but I always feel like I'm with an elder with this guy. And he said, Paulie, you, you seem to be taking a lot of anger out on yourself. Don't get angry. Let's get even. And he said, with the revolution, mate, you know, guitars are just as effective as guns. And I sort of went, wow, you know, what a what a concept. It's like Woody Guthrie's guitar that had that line on it, this machine kills fascists. Exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. so we formed this band and we have now been, you know, played all over Timor-Leste, Australia, we went to um, Portugal as guests of the Portuguese Communist Party. It was like the big day out for communists in... In, in, in Lisbon? Yeah. Right. You're playing for the Portuguese Communist Party? Yeah, yeah. And I'm an ultra boy, you know, an old ultra boy. So it was pretty, you know, drank a lot of red wine, you know. But the Timorese <laughs> community, because, you know, Timor being a former Portuguese colony, when we got to Lisbon, the Timorese community turned out to meet us at the airport. And I was just like one of the the community, you know. But we also ended up going to Brazil with the the movie, the Balabo movie, because Gil and I worked as um, musical consultants on the movie. Yeah. You and Gil wrote a song called Liberdade, which yeah. means liberty, of course, in Portuguese. Yeah. How did that take off? When And how was it smuggled into East Timor under Indonesian occupation? Well, we, we were very lucky. We had um, a new Melbourne uni activist who was sneaking up there. And the reason we wrote that song was because we heard the Indonesian governor you know, leading up to the referendum vote, was putting out all these songs, you know, stay part of Indonesia. It's How really the governor good. was singing that song? Yeah, he fancied himself as a pop star, this guy. So it was getting broadcast at the airports and on official radio. So, so just to be clear, he, the yeah. governor put out a, his own pop song yeah, called like, Let's Stay With Indonesia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. So, it was, you know, it's like um, Peter Dutton releasing a single, you know, like <laughs> or something like that. But, but we heard that... And I said, come on, Gil, we're going to come up with an an alternate to that. And it's funny, we wrote Liberdade literally walking on a stage up the steps and Gil's going, how does it go? And I'm going, look, I'll do this, you do that, and then we'll kick back in with that bit and then that'll be it. And I say to people now, you know, I haven't gotten any any gold records at home, um, you know, from anything musically ever done, but when I go up to Dilly, little kids come running up to me in the street going, Liberdade, Liberdade, (laughs) and nothing beats that. Well, you know, they often say that the the biggest pop hits Mm. of all time were all written in about 30 seconds to a minute. That's like something just pops in your head and there it is. It it did, and... uh, and we put it on these green blanket sets so the Indonesians didn't know what it was. And these uni students went up there and they just gave it out in taxis and restaurants. And it was this guy called Sam Maresh, who's a big um, business up there. And uh, 
And I can remember afterwards I said to him, oh, that's fantastic. You know, you spread the word on Liberdade, you know. Do you like the song? And he goes, Paulie, I absolutely hate that song. And I said, <laughs> what do you mean? He said, Paulie, I compare that song to Achy Breaky Heart. And I'm going, what do you mean? And he goes, well, you know, we met the resistance and they took us up to their their, their um, camp in the hills and they played it on their loudspeaker. And I said, well, that's fantastic. And they said, yeah, but that's all they played for three days on loop, you know. So we're all, we all went mental hearing this song. Stop playing it. Please stop playing stop it. Stop torturing yeah. the freedom forces of yes, the <laughs> that's it. Jose Ramos Horta, the independence leader, was awarded the Nobel Prize and then became eventually president yeah. of Timor-Leste and he's Timor's president again today. Yeah. You became friends with him. Yeah. He had met your brother. He had met your brother and I think he'd warned him not to go into Balibo. What did he tell you about the last time he saw your brother? Well, well, when I first met Jose Ramos Horta, he was at a friend's place in St Kilda sleeping on the couch and he was this funny little guy with a bow tie and this uh, suitcase that was broken, you know, tied up with bits of string, and he's going, hi, you know, and they said, oh, Polly, you should meet this guy. This is East Timor's foreign minister who sits in the UN representing East Timor, and I met him, and he said, yeah, I'm going to get liberty for my country one day, and I thought, this guy's off his rocker, you know, there's no absolutely no way can he do that. But he said to me, oh, I was actually, I met your brother, and he started crying as he started telling me this, and I saw him just up up near Balabo and I said, guys, turn around. The Indonesians coming through and they're not going to stop, so get the hell out of there. By the way, classic Australian journalist Jill Jolliffe also said the same thing to them, get out of there. Tony Minati was getting out at the same time. Tony yeah. Minati said the same yeah. thing, get out of there. But my father was always very dirty on them for not listening to the advice and, and leaving when they were told. You know, they very naively thought, oh, look, I know what, we'll just paint an Australian flag on the, the wall of the house that we're staying in and that'll be enough to keep the Indonesians away from us. But half these Indonesian troops wouldn't even know what their own flag looked like, let alone the Australian one. So that didn't prove any kind of protection whatsoever. But um, but Jose you know, ended up sort of, yeah, f fulfilling his word, becoming president, but he's... He's always sort of been there for me when I've needed him, you know, and, um, you know, we've done a lot of stuff together and he, he's a genuinely nice guy, yeah. So then we know what happened and eventually it all fell away. Suharto mm. lost power after the Asian economic crisis in 97. President Habibi took over, ordered a referendum uh, in which the East Timorese people voted overwhelmingly for, for independence. Yeah. The Indonesians sort of departed and let, with the scorched earth policy, sort of deciding to burn the place down and take everything they could before they they left at the time. And that's when Australia sent in or led uh, an interfet yeah. force to stabilise uh, the country. Yeah. What did you see of the state of that country after the Indonesian, pro-Indonesian militias had wrecked the joint? Oh, they did wreck it. And uh, there was a lot of graffiti up there the Indonesians left that said, let them eat rock, meaning don't leave anything. So they took... Like, it's just like the Russians in Ukraine, isn't it? It's oh, not, not, a, not, very, not they, the same they mindset. They don't like losing, you know. How ungrateful you are for not wanting us to govern you. Yes. So, so they took, like, the toilet roll holders and the screws from windows and during COVID... They had shocking floods in Dili. Well, a lot of that was caused because the Indonesians blocked all the drains up. And also there was this one place I used to stay at, Gil's mum owned, and across the road was this huge enclosure full of crocodiles, which are everywhere in Timor. And just before they left, the Indonesians let the door open of all the enclosures so all the crocodiles moved yeah. out over Dili. You say that Australia's politicians have treated the families of the Balibo Five disgracefully, by and large. Yeah. Steve Brax is one of the few you say that was oh, he not was, like he, that. He, he was fantastic, uh, Braxy. I've got to I take my hat off to him. He, um, well, he organised for the house where the Junos were killed. The Victorian government purchased it. They got the CMAFU, you know, the union to... Uh, refurbish it and it's now up at Balibo and it's used as a dentist and a crèche and a homework club and it's and that's all Steve Brax, you know. And uh, He invited you and your mum to go to that, didn't yeah, the, we, the we all went ceremony? Up, yeah. All the families. One of the, the, the worst things they never did was when it all went down, they never brought all the families together. 
So everyone sort of went off on their own. You know, Shirley Shackleton went off and has been doing her stuff for years, but sort of on her own. And, you know, I've been doing my stuff on our own and the Cunninghams have been doing their stuff on their own. And it was we were all sort of all over the place because we'd never sort of been brought together, you know, to sort of work on the collective and So it wasn't until 2003 when this house in Balibo was turned into this community centre yeah. that you were brought together? that we had met them, that we sort of met oh. these crew and, and, and the English relatives um, because two of the, the journos were from England, uh, you know, they came out here and they're going, wow, we never knew you guys existed. We just thought it was us that were, was living with this. So we, we got all got to meet them and we all went up to Balibo and, yeah, the house was given by the Victorian government back to the two Marie's who um, use it up there to this day. And uh, and now it's sort of a bit of, it's not Gallipoli by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a place where if people go to Timor, they usually make an effort to go up to Balibo to have a look at, you know, the, the town and stuff like that. What was it like for your mum to be there? Um, pretty hard, but I think it was sort of closure for her a bit because we there was a service for Tony, you know, and, it's, you know, we all felt, you know, that we were together and we sort of buried him up there. She was always very um, suspect about, you know, a week after the journalist was supposed to be killed, they wrapped all the remains in some a coffin and sent it to Jakarta. So there's actually a, a, a funeral site in Jakarta, but my mum always said it was just chicken bones or it was just, you know, it wasn't the actual remains of the journos, you know, and, and no-one ever thinks it was. So so at least there's this place in Balibo now. Yeah, yeah, and look, it's, you know, I feel like my, my brother's in the soil with the Timorese there now and that's sort of why I feel a real affinity to, to Timor now and I've been there 30 times now, yeah. So now we come to your health. Yeah, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> so you got yeah. you got hepatitis C in the 1980s and kept drinking nonetheless. How did you become aware in around 2006 your liver was about to pack it in poorly? Well, I, I sort of had to have a doctor's appointment and my little sister and I were going out for lunch and I just said, oh, hang on, I'll just go and have this quick doctor's appointment. And I walked in and this doctor saw me and he said, Listen, mate, go across the road to emergency. You need to have an operation straight away. So I went up and had this hernia operation. And when they did that, they said, oh, we can see there's a lot of liquid inside of you, like your liver is is shocking. And then it later worked out that I needed a liver transplant. And um, I had no idea, Richard, what that meant. I, I thought... You know, to tell you the truth, I rang someone and said, I'll oh, just put that gig at the ESPY. The doctors got back two weeks, you know, because I'll just go get a liver off someone, they'll right. put it in and you just put it back a couple Find of a weeks. Find a passerby, get yeah, them to give you your yeah, liver. Yeah, yeah, right, you know, yeah. like no worries. Yeah. But, uh, like, I was in the Austin Hospital for 18 months, you know, to the... And you're waiting for a transplant organ. Yeah. What happens to you as your liver's failing? What, what well, you get you? this thing called encapelothelia, which is the toxins build up in your blood because they're not being processed through the liver. So you just start having these really trippy kind of nightmarish delusions, you know. Um, I can remember, I, you know, I thought Rupert Murdoch had come in to visit me, you know, at the hospital and that, you know, and my family had sent me to a hospital in Chicago, you know, rather than I was still in Melbourne, but I just had all these crazy kind of thoughts. But... It, it got to the stage with me that it was looking really bad, you know, and... Um, like right to the end? like you Right to the end and to, to the stage where a priest came in and said, oh, you know, you know, you realise you're going to go and meet your maker of your, of your major piece and I'm going, oh, this guy's joking, isn't he, you know, and then he left and all my family and my partner were all in tears and... And everyone's crying, and I was sort of so deluded and pumped up on morphine and oxycodone. I was going, oh, no, it's okay, it's all right. But everyone was going. What well, they were there to hold your hand as you were dying. Basically, yeah. And so what happened that night? One of the last nights I can remember was I woke up and I was still very sort of not quite with it. And sitting at the end of my bed was a little palliative care nun whose job it is to sort of help people cross from life to death, you know. What did she say to you? Well, I, I looked at her and I started talking and it was only after about 10 minutes because I was so sick I realised she was dark-skinned and I said, oh, 
you know, whereabouts are you actually from, sister? And she said, oh, this little country called Timor-Leste. And I said, you know, is this some kind of a joke? And she goes, no, what do you mean? And I said, oh, well, you know, my, my brother was one of, you know, the Balabo Five, you know, and she said, oh, you know. And I said, in fact, I play in this, this band, you know, the Dilly. And, and she goes, oh, the Dilly All-Stars, you, you guys got some, you know, food up to my village once. Why, why are you actually here? And I said, oh, sister, I, I need a new liver. And, and, and this little nun looked at me in the eyes and then she said, I'll get you one. And I thought, gee, it's a bit early to be drinking the altar wine, you know, or she's she's sniffing the oxygen here, this nun, or, you know, she's dilute, like she's crazy. And I go, what do you mean? And she goes... Well, I'm going to ring East Timor. I'm going to get all the nuns. We're going to we're going to pray to the big guy upstairs. But if I get your liver, you've got to help the women and kids up there. Is that a deal? And I thought this nun's crazy. So I said, whatever, sister. Sure, whatever. No worries. You know. And just and then she left, and I laughed, and I went, that is such a wacky coincidence. I can't believe that. But then next morning, after waiting 18 months. This doctor comes running into my room going, unbelievable, Paulie. Someone has just donated a liver. It's a perfect match for you. And Paulie, was did that actually happen? That I mean, actually happened. Was, was it a hallucination or was it real? There was, well, see, people say to me, oh, that's just the most amazing coincidence. And I go, no, that was bloody a miracle, mate. You weren't dying in that bed, you know. Was seriously. that unreal? Was she a real person? yeah. Did you meet her subsequently and all that? Yeah, 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 absolutely. That really happened? That really sort of happened. And um, What do you make of that? Well, you tell me. You, you tell me. I was just gobsmacked. I couldn't believe it. But it's, it's almost like when, I'm, when she left that night, I went, that is too wacky a coincidence. Something is going to go down. And um, Sorry, but I'm just going to have yeah. to say at this point. Yeah. The, like the murder of your brother yeah. sort of convinced you the world was chaotic and random and... Mad, and then yeah. and then this strange thing happens. It's really odd. I'm not saying that you but, know. Yeah. I, I'm not. I'm not being superstitious about it. But it just seems really weird and well, odd, doesn't it? Mate, no, it didn't seem weirder to anyone. You know, like, like here I am in this bed, going fancy this nun from all the countries in the world could have been from anywhere. But the fact that she's from you know Timor Leste. And she said she was going to get a village full of nuns to pray for you. Yeah, yeah, and and I just sort of went. That's too sort of bizarre, you know, and... Um, and how long ago was that? 12 years. And here you are, Here alive. I am, and, and but then what happened was Robert Connolly came to see me not long after I'd got out of the hospital and said, I'm going to make a movie about your brother. You know, can you work on it with, um, you know, your friend Gil Santos? Can we get you as musical consultants up on the film? So we went up there. But my friend Abel Gutierrez, who was the uh, Australian ambassador from East Timor, East Timor's ambassador in Australia, said, oh, Paulie, while you're going up there, there's this little group of nuns I've met. They've got nothing, mate. They're called the Alma Sisters and they look after all the disabled and abandoned kids up there. Just just go around and have a cup of tea with them and say hello, will you? And I went, oh, no, no, no. And then I went, oh, hang on, I did promise. So I said, OK, I'll, I'll go around. And Gil and I went around to meet these nuns. We met these five nuns and they were in charge of about 40 really badly disabled kids, you know, and have, having a disabled child's heart in Australia, in a place like East Timor, it's it's a nightmare because there's no ramps or proper wheelchairs or... Or anything much in the way of social security. Yeah. No, no, but we yeah. we, we, we met this, these nuns and the only form of transport they had was a motor scooter. So we ended up coming back to Australia and spreading word about the nuns. And Australians being the fantastic people we are, word got out and we, we ended up raising $80,000 and we bought them a brand new Tarago with a van with a lift that went up and down at the back and they could also go out to the districts, to the poor areas to see kids out there. But I can remember... You know, ring. You know, went back up there and I said to Mother Superior, "Oh, Mother Superior, great news, mate! We've raised you eighty. And she went, "Paulie, eighty dollars. We can get food, blankets, medicine." And I said, "No, no, no, eighty thousand. And she looked at me like the man who felt a worth, or she just <laughs> didn't believe I was fair income. But um, you know, Paulie, when I first met you, yeah. about God, a 
kind of a long while ago now. Yes, it you, is. You had one eyebrow shaved off, one half of your hair shaved yeah. off, and you, I think, and I, I'd just seen you in a film clip for Die Yuppie Die where yeah. you were wearing a big white shirt with a dollar sign on the front painted on with a black tie forming the slash down the yeah, middle of it. Yeah, that's it. And here you are today, Paulie Stewart, yeah. OAM, respectful friend of presidents, uh, beloved by Catholic nuns in yeah. East Timor. Has this given you any perspective on the shape of your life now? Now that I'm just bringing this point up, given yeah. that you saw life as being shapeless to begin with, do you see now some a kind of a thread that runs through it, Paulie? What what I have learnt, um, you know, and and people always say, "Oh, Paulie, you're looking after these little nuns." You know, that's so great. You know, you, and I go to them, "No, no, no, no." What I've given them, they've given me back ten times. You know, seriously. You know, and. Uh, my favourite quote is that Winston Churchill one, you know, you make a living by what you're given, but you make a life by what you give away. You know, meeting these little nuns, you know, people say, gee, Paulie, you, you've strayed from the punk rock, you know, to the nuns. And I go, no, 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 no. The nuns are the big punks, you know. They're, they're up at four o'clock every morning. These these women don't take orders from men. They, um, They're anti-establishment. Anti-establishment. Yeah. Don't live for material possessions. They're radicals, you know. They're full on. In fact, I've got a couple of them here in, in Melbourne at the moment and I'm taking them into schools and we talk about their work to raise money for them. But they're, they're up at like 4 o'clock. Mate, I've been on a tour with, um, you know, Billy Idol and the Cramps, you know. They're, they, they're easy. The nuns are up at 4 o'clock. I'm going, sister, go back to bed. So they're hardcore as well. They're hardcore. And all that anger you felt mm. uh, over the death of your brother, have you sort of spun that into gold a bit in some ways and turned that into activism? Well, the wacky, the wacky thing about it all was, um, about it all is, um, you know, I've been working with the nuns for, you know, 10 years now. And I was looking at one of them, my particular mate, Sister Anastasia, and I said, buddy, where do you actually come from? Because you actually don't look like, you know, these Timorese sort of women. Where where are you from? And she said, oh, Paulie, only a few of us are Timorese. The majority is Ind uh, Indonesian. And I just went, wow. That's when it all hit me. And I went, I've done the whole 360 back to, you know, to the boy at Malvern Station who was so upset that the Indonesians had killed his brother to now I'm working with them, looking after disabled kids in Timor. What a wacky ride, eh? It is one of the wildest yeah. rides I think any Australian yeah. has been on, Paulie. It's been such a pleasure talking to you today. Thank Thanks, you so matey. much. Paulie Stewart's memoir is called All the Rage. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. When was the last time you bought something to wear? This week? Yesterday? The average Australian buys 56 items of clothing and chucks out 15 kilos of clothes a year. So how did we get here? I'm Veronica Milsom, host of the ABC podcast Threads, where I undress the fast fashion industry and how it's designed to make us buy until we die. Threads. It's everything fast fashion doesn't want you to know. Hear it in the ABC Listen app.